Well, good evening and welcome to the baptism service. Um, Usually we have baby dedications and all sorts of things, but I think we're just going to have some baptisms um, this evening. And one of the things that uh, um, Ed, Edward, Willis, um, should I tell them all your other nicknames? Um, (laughs) We invent nicknames for them as a hobby. Uh, One of the things that... uh, Edward was asking, he says, do, do we have a tape on baptism? Maybe you could, could teach on it a little bit. And so what I'm going to do is do a little survey of baptism and just kind of give you an overview of baptism and what the New Testament says about it, and then we'll watch some baptisms. And so that's what we're going to do. If you have your Bibles, you can uh, uh, open them up. Uh, we're going to be looking at a whole variety of texts. If you didn't bring your Bible, you can probably find one in the pew in front of you in the little pocket back there. Um, Virtually all Christians agree baptism is important. Unfortunately, there is no universal agreement about the purpose and mode of baptism and exactly what it means and which texts teach what. And so what I'm going to do is give you um, an overview of what we believe and kind of survey what different churches and denominations have been divided over for centuries. Baptism was not new with Christianity. If you go back and you look, you find out that the Jews did baptism uh, even before John the Baptist came. And even pagans did baptism as people would be baptized into certain sects or cults or, or commitments, kind of like New Year's resolutions and things like that. It it represented a a a commitment to something, a, a being submersed and, and brought new into something. And so in the New Testament, people understood what baptism was in general. Now as you go through the Bible, you find that there are several different kinds of baptisms mentioned. There are figurative uses of the word baptism, and then there's literal uses of the word baptism, and then literal realities that go with figurative uses of baptism. And so, depending on how you interpret these texts will depend what you believe the Bible teaches about baptism. This is why there's so much confusion. One person will go to one text and read, um, this is what the Bible says about baptism, and they will read it, and in their mind they're thinking water baptism. Another person is thinking spirit baptism. And so there are different... um, texts which teach different things. So I just want to do a survey of some of the different uses of the word baptism. The first is John the Baptist, baptism of repentance. If you turn to Matthew chapter 3, Matthew 3, there's quite a bit in Matthew 3 about baptism, and you look at Matthew, I'm in Mark, I'm looking down there, I'm thinking, that verse is not there. Matthew 3, verse 4, it speaks of John who came preaching repentance. And this is what we read um, in verses 4, it talks about he had this garment of camel's hair, which was the... um, garment of a prophet and and a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey yummy little diet there then the Jerusalem it says in verse 5 then Jerusalem was going out to him in all Judea and all the district around the Jordan 
And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. So right here we learn a little bit about John's baptism. It was a baptism that people engaged in when they went out to John, which is about a 20 mile all day hike down to the Jordan River to get baptized as, and when they did, they confessed their sins. Now what's great about John's baptism is we have a commentary on John's baptism from the Apostle Paul in Acts 19. You can turn over there. Acts 19. And here Paul has met up with some of John's disciples. And he has asked them if they have received the Holy Spirit. And their reply was, well, we didn't even know if there, there was a Holy Spirit. They, they, didn't, they were clueless. And then Paul said this, in verse 3 of Acts 19 through verse 5, he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized, now here's Paul's little inspired commentary, John baptized with the baptism of repentance. Telling people, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is in Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So right here, Paul tells us that John's baptism was a baptism of repentance in preparation for the coming of the Messiah. You put those two texts we've just learned. John baptized, telling people to confess their sins, to repent, and prepare themselves for the Messiah. Later, a second um, mention of baptism, which is only mentioned briefly, is in John 4. And if you have a new Bible, you will break it in as we are going back and forth here. In John chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Not only were John's followers baptized but when Jesus was alive on the earth Jesus's followers were baptized look at what John 4 1 and 2 says therefore when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard now notice this that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John although Jesus himself was not baptizing but his disciples were and then he left Judea and went away into Galilee. Right here, this is the only mention of this. The Gospels are silent. But apparently, as Jesus was um, preaching the Gospel and people were believing in him, those people were being baptized in the name of Jesus before he died. But there's really not any detail given on it, so we can't really make any comments other than what the text says right here. When John was preaching in the wilderness, he described two different kinds of baptism later on that Jesus would baptize with. And this is found in Matthew 3. I want to turn back there. I'm trying to give you some sort of chronology here, but we'll have to skip back and forth. We'll be back to Matthew 3 several times. Matthew 3, verse 11. And Jesus is being described here as one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit and fire. John says, As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, here we have two other kinds. Baptism of the Holy Spirit. This is a reference to 
the Holy Spirit that we receive when we place our faith in Jesus Christ at conversion. When we hear the gospel, we believe in the gospel, we repent, we believe, we receive Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. We receive the Holy Spirit or we are baptized, figuratively speaking, into the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. And baptism is, is of the Spirit is used figuratively there of receiving the Holy Spirit. In Romans chapter 8, verse 9, as Paul is contrasting those who are in the flesh, unbelievers, with those who are in the Spirit, believers, he says this in verse 9. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So we know that upon conversion, we receive the Holy Spirit. We are, quote, baptized into the Holy Spirit. That is not water baptism. That is baptism of the Spirit that John was speaking of, that after Jesus came, he would baptize with the Holy Spirit. But then Jesus also uses this um, fourth mention of baptize, baptism when he, John says he would baptize with fire. Now, what could that mean? Well, usually in the Scriptures, when you look at fire, fire is, is uh, something that represents judgment, and so what Jesus, or what John was describing Jesus is doing is he would baptize believers with the Holy Spirit, give them the Holy Spirit, but those who would not believe, he would baptize them with judgment. That was the baptism of the fire. Fifth, Jesus, when speaking of how the truth proclaimed by his followers would divide people, he said this in Luke chapter 12, verses 50 and 51. Now he's talking about the cost of discipleship and how men would um, hate the disciples as they proclaimed the truth. And he said this, I have come to cast fire upon the earth. Here's the baptism of fire. And how I wish it were already kindled. That is an interesting verse. I was thinking about that. Jesus wished while he was on earth that the wicked would be judged. Verse 50, but I have a baptism to undergo and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. What do you think he's talking about? It's crucifixion. So in that text, baptism is used figuratively of having to go through something and in this case, it would be death on the cross and that's why Jesus was distressed. And so you could call that, what I like to call it, the, de the baptism of death or baptism of martyrdom because he was talking about how he'd have to suffer on the cross and die. Six, Paul in 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty nine, when speaking of the resurrection, made a very strange comment. You can turn there if you want, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The whole chapter is on the resurrection and Paul puts in this very strange verse just to irritate interpreters. And he says this. Now in the preceding context, of before verse 29, Paul speaks in the near context there of how all things will be subject to Christ. And then in the following context, he explains that the reason he has boldness in the face of trials and persecution is that he believes in the resurrection. But in between all things being subject to Christ and this hope of the resurrection, he says this. Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? 
If the dead are not raised at all, then why are they baptized for them? Now, many people wish that he had just left that out. Because that is a hard verse. It, it, at first, it just doesn't seem to fit the context well. You, you start reading, okay, you have the order of the resurrection and how everything would be subject to Christ and then this otherwise thing. And then you go on and we're in danger and all this stuff. But hey, we don't have to worry because even if we are killed, we will be resurrected. But there is this little argument here. Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, then why are they baptized? Well, this is the only text that mentions baptism for the dead. That's one bad thing against it. The second thing is, is this is a text that the Mormon church uses to support their doctrine that if you are baptized for somebody who is dead, you can save them. That is why the Mormon church is so into genealogies. They are into genealogies because they want to find out who their ancestors are. And if any of those ancestors were not Mormons, they get baptized for them to save them. And this is where they get that doctrine from this one text. Now the scriptures are clear that you cannot be saved after you die. And that no one can be saved by being baptized. We'll look at that more later. So what does the text mean? Well some have suggested that... There were some sects during Paul's time that actually baptized for the dead falsely. But Paul is just referring to them to say, you know, if there is no resurrection from the dead, then why are these people, because he uses what is called the far demonstrative, those, why, is it, why are those being baptized for the dead if there is no resurrection? Why would they go through all of this hassle? They were right in that there was a resurrection. They were wrong in that there is no or, or there there is no biblical mandate for being baptized for the dead the problem is is it seems interesting or hard to say that paul would use a false doctrine to prove a point i think the better view is that paul is speaking of those who have been baptized because of the testimony of those christians who are who are now dead let's say an unbeliever reads a book today written by a puritan who lived you know and died 300 years ago and that, that person is sitting in their living room, they're reading, you know, Thomas Watson's The Doctrine of Repentance, and as he is reading The Doctrine of Repentance, he's convicted, he understands the gospel, he repents, and he believes. And then he comes to church, and he gets baptized. Why? Because of the testimony of Thomas Watson. So he is baptized for the, for the one who is dead. Or let's say some of the faithful Christians in Paul's time were doing some hardcore evangelizing and they were going around, they're sharing their faith, but persecution was high and those people ended up getting martyred, killed for the faith. But yet some of the people they witnessed to repented and believed and now they were being baptized because of the testimony of those who were dead. I think that is probably a better view. But there are other views and it's a hard text. But we know for certain that once you die, it's over. It is appointed for man to die once and after judgment. So the Mormon view cannot be true. It is also not true that you can be baptized for somebody and impart anything to them. The scriptures don't support that anywhere. A seventh mention of baptism, another difficult text, is in 1 Peter 3, verse 21. Turn there. We're going to spend some time on this one because this is used by Christians. 
This is used by Christians who believe you have to be baptized in order to be saved. For instance, the Church of Christ uses this text and others that we will mention to try and say, if you are not baptized, you can't be saved. They say, oh, you're saved by grace through faith, but if you aren't baptized, you can't be saved. And it's like, what is that? Is that salvation by grace plus baptism? If you have to be baptized and have to do the work of baptism, we're talking about physical water baptism, then you're saved by works. Grace plus a work is salvation by works. Now they get this view from this verse in 21 of chapter 3. And this is what it says. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. And they love to just quote that, baptism now saves you. They leave off the corresponding to this. They leave off the end of the sentence. And a lot of times I've talked to them and they go, oh, the Bible says baptism now saves you. Oh, I, what's the context of that verse? Well, I don't know. Well, it's, you can't just pluck it out of the context. So let's look at the context. Let's see what, what Peter is talking about. Let's see. Why don't we go back to verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. In which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. I will just stop there. I've got to comment on this because everybody's going, I wonder what that means. Um, Sometimes we say the Apostles' Creed here and it talks about Jesus descending into hell and every time we, we... you know, we don't do it very often. Whenever we mention the Apostles' Creed, people come up and go, did Jesus really descend into hell? Well, that's what it says here. Most believe that what this is talking about, when it says, in which he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, most people believe that what, what Jesus did after his death is, he descended into Hades, or hell, the place of the dead, And he made a victory proclamation, kind of a uh, divine ninner-ninner. And um, he, he proclaimed to the spirits in prison that he had conquered death through his death on the cross and, of course, his subsequent resurrection. Now, you ask yourself, well, why would Jesus do that? Well... If you remember, Jude and 2 Peter talks about Christ casting certain spirits into a Tartarus, a, a place of a, a prison. Do you remember what happened when uh, the Gerizim demoniac, when they saw Jesus and they cried out, you know, Son of man, have you come here to torment us before our time? And they were entreating Jesus that they w- he would not cast them into the abyss. There are certain spirits who are kept in bonds until the certain day of judgment. And so when Jesus died and was buried and he would rise again, good angels would know about it. Demons who are not in the abyss would know about it. And people on earth would know about it through the proclamation of the apostles and Christians. But those spirits in prison would not know about it. So it seems like God had Christ go down there and say, hey, I won. Okay, so we go on. 
in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. Verse 20. Who were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, Moses and his family entering the ark being saved from the flood, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Now, what they like to do is, is they go to this text, those who teach that baptism saves you, and they say, look right here, it says that Noah and his family were brought through the water. Aha! That's what baptism is. You go through the waters of baptism. Just like Noah's family. And that's what it's teaching here. Well, the problem is, is that Noah and his family were not baptized, were not submersed into the flood. They got in the ark and floated on top of the water. All those who were baptized in the flood all died that's the first problem with that view second Peter clearly says that he is not talking about water baptism he says not the removal of dirt from the flesh and then he tells us what he is talking about but an appeal to God for a good conscience Then adds, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Water baptism is not in view here. Appealing to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ is in view. The illustration of Noah is an illustration of those who placed their faith in God and subsequently were saved from the wrath of God which came upon the earth. And so Peter is using Noah as that illustration. Just as we, when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we escape the wrath of God to come, so they place their faith in God and escaped the wrath that came upon the earth. Now another text they like to use is Mark 16, 16. You need to turn here. Mark 16, 16. I want you to turn here because I want you to notice something. This is at the very end of the book of Mark. It might be beyond the end of the book of Mark. Now, what's interesting about this text is it says this, He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. Now, there are several problems with using this text to say that it teaches baptismal, baptism regeneration, or baptismal regeneration is what's called. And that is this. First of all, the last part of Mark 16 is not in any of the earlier manuscripts. If you look at verse 9, you will see a little bracket right after the 9. And then a lot of times in the margin or at the bottom, it'll tell you that... Um, that these, this section is not found in any of the earlier manuscripts. So it's very dubious to use this section of scripture to base any doctrine. But let's just assume that it is inspired. It does belong in the word of God. That all the earlier manuscripts, the scribes just accidentally left it out. The text says, he who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. Now did you notice something? 
What condemns people according to this verse? Not being baptized? No, by disbelieving. To believe would be to place your faith in Jesus Christ. That is what saves you. And because you would be a believer and you would want to follow Christ, which is what true saving faith is, you would be subsequently baptized. But when he says, those who disbelieve shall be condemned, he doesn't even mention baptism. That's hard on using that text. Belief in the gospel is always what saves. Baptism is a natural response. They also like to use Acts 2.38, where Peter is preaching to the Jews at Pentecost and says, Repent, and each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, is Peter teaching that water baptism saved them? No. Repent, and then after they would repent, they would place their faith in Christ and be baptized as a response. And all you have to do is go through the book of Acts and you see that's what happens over and over again. People hear the gospel, repent, believe, and are baptized. We'll look at that later. You can go through the whole book of Acts. You can't find one one text where people were baptized so they could be saved. There's an eight kind of baptism mentioned, or maybe not a kind, some of these actually overlap, but different terminology is used, is believer's baptism. And this is what we teach. And this is what's going to happen tonight. In Matthew 28, 19 through 20, in the Great Commission, Jesus said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That is the command. Go make disciples. And then as you are going, making disciples, be baptizing them, How? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Now, first you become a disciple, then you are baptized. Jesus says, go make disciples. When they become disciples, you then baptize them. When they become believers. Now, there are a couple other views of baptism that are not found in the Bible or at least are kind of taken off some of these scriptures we look I just want to mention them briefly one is the Roman Catholic Church an Eastern Orthodox view of baptism they believe that baptism is a necessary part of the sacraments the seven sacraments needed for salvation they would go to some of the verses that we have looked at about baptism saving you And they would say, you've got to do this, and if you don't do all seven sacraments, you can't be saved. This is really a form of salvation by works. And they would use some of the same texts, and so I'm not going to go in them because we've covered them all. But the Bible doesn't talk about the seven necessary sacraments we need to keep in order for salvation. That's added to the scriptures. It's not found in the Bible. Now, among the Reformed denominations, like Lutherans and most Presbyterians, baptism is to the New Testament what circumcision is in the Old Testament. For instance, in the Old Testament, a child was to be baptized as a sign of the covenant, that they were a covenant person. All males, eight days old, would be circumcised to show that they were sons of the covenant. And they would tell you that Baptism has replaced circumcision, and baptism is now a sign of the new covenant. Now, there are some problems with this view. 
first at the scriptures nowhere teach this that's the hardest part of the view another part of the view that makes it difficult is only males were circumcised in the Old Testament not females but baptism is for both male and female alike but this helps you understand why I mean it's not unreasonable to make a parallel there you can see why they would do it but this is but this is why they baptize infants just as they circumcised infants to make them sons of the covenant so they baptize infants to make them children of the covenant and then later on when they have learned the been catechized and learned the doctrines of the church and they place their faith and they would confirm them into the church which would be kind of the equivalent of our baptism but that's how they do it now they would justify their position by going to texts such as Acts 16.15 this is a text that describes Lydia who was the seller of purple fabric she came to the Lord and it says she and her household were baptized or they would go to Acts 16.33 after the Philippian jailer believed the text says and immediately he was baptized he and all his household and Acts 18.8 we read Crispus the leader of the synagogue believed in the Lord with all his household and many of the Corinthians when they heard were believing and being baptized and they would say see infants are included there and you would say where? Well, it says their whole household. Well, yeah. So they have to assume that infants were there, that infants were baptized before placing their faith in Christ. But the text really doesn't say it. It's an argument from silence. Now, Jesus said, go make disciples, that is, preach the gospel, and then when they have believed, be baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son, the Holy Spirit. And you would think, well, that's the end of it. I mean, that's pretty clear. And so this is what we teach, believers' baptism. And it's taught in several texts. And let me just read these to you. This is a little survey of some of the texts in Acts. This is not all of them. For instance, in Acts chapter 2, we've already read a portion of it. In verses 38 through 40, Peter said to them, this is at Pentecost, Repent, each of you, and be baptized in the name of Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, that is being baptized by the Spirit. For the purpose... For the promise is for you and your children and all who are far off, as many as the Lord um, our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified it and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who had received his word were baptized. And that day were added about 3,000 souls. So they received his word and then were baptized. In Acts chapter 8, verses 36 through 38, Philip, remember Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, he's sharing with him from Isaiah. And verse 36 says, 36 says, And as they went along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. Now notice, he went down into the water. He wasn't saying, oh, there's some water, let me go get a handful and sprinkle you with it. They went down into the water. In Acts chapter 10, 
verses 47 through 48, Peter's preaching the gospel to the Gentiles and they believe and the Holy Spirit falls upon them and Peter says this in verse 47, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ and then they asked him to stay for a few days. So we see in all these instances people believing, hearing the gospel, believing, and then being baptized as a response of of placing their faith in Christ. Now, when should a person be baptized? I have people come up to me and say, you know, I'm, you know, at what age should uh, you know we let my child be baptized? Well, at the age they, you know, they're or pretty sure they're saved and that they can articulate why they're being baptized and can give a testimony to their salvation. People say, well, you know, do you think they should be at least 12? Well, I think that as soon as you, a parent, believe with all your heart that your child knows the Lord, manifests fruit of knowing the Lord, can share the gospel with you and tell you why they are saved and how they got saved, and can articulate to you the purpose of baptism, then yeah, they can be baptized. I don't know what age that is. That would be between you and them. Now, if you thought, oh yeah, well, they're saved and, and, and no problem here. Um, you know, we'll just you know, have them be baptized and they go to the baptism class. They will get strained out if they can't give testimony to how they were saved, the gospel. And after the class, they can't articulate what baptism is. So, the age is not really given in the scriptures. But what about, what does baptism mean? And for this, I think the best text is Romans chapter 6. You can turn there. And we'll close with this. Romans chapter 6. This text is not really a text on water baptism. But I think it describes very clearly what baptism in general means. Paul says, are we to continue in sin... That grace may increase, verse 1, no, may it never be. Um, Verse 3, or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, Jesus, have been baptized into his death? Now notice he's talking about being baptized into Christ's death here, not water. And I think he's talking about spirit baptism, receiving the spirit. But he says, verse 4, therefore, we have been, and here is some symbolism here, we have been buried with him through the baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father so we too might walk in newness of life for if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection knowing this that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin and he goes on it's real similar to Galatians 2 20 you know, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live but Christ lives in me and the life I live by faith I live in the son of God who died and gave himself for me it's the same type of thing here but notice the the symbolism he talks about first baptism he says is a symbolism of Christ's death going down in the water is like going down into death Being under the water would then symbolize uh, being buried with him through baptism. uh, That that burial, as Paul speaks of, being crucifying the flesh. And then resurrection coming up out of the water. 
to be reborn in newness of life. And that's what we teach people here, that baptism is your way of proclaiming through a physical act, an ordinance, the death You are dying to sin and your burial with Christ, I have died with Christ, and your resurrection to a newness of life. And so that's what we teach baptism symbolizes. So, what do we say here? How do we baptize? Well, there's four modes of baptize. You can be a sprinkler, a pourer, a triple dipper, or a mercer. Some people are sprinklers. You come up there and maybe a baby or an adult even, you, you get some water and sprinkle. Or maybe you get a pitcher and pour on the top of their head. Some, like the Plymouth Brethren, do what they call triple immersion. When they say baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, they baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three dunks. And then you're thoroughly baptized. We teach once. You baptize once because the name there is singular. Baptize them in the singular name in the Greek of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We do it by immersion. Why? Because when you look up the word baptism in the lexicons, baptizo means to dip, immerse, or sink. So that's what we we do. We, We dip, immerse, or sink. And in the English Bibles, that's what it would be translated if the King James Version, the King James translators, were not scared. But there were some at the time of the King James translators in 16, early 1600s, who believed in sprinkling, some pouring, and some immersing. And so they didn't want to take a position and translate it immerse, which is what it clearly means, so they just translated it baptize. They actually took baptizo, the Greek word, and just transliterated it into English so they didn't have to make a commitment and their new translation of the Bible. Very politically correct. But to solve their dilemma, they just did that, baptize. And so when you read your Bible, you read baptize, baptize, baptize. And it would probably be better if it said immerse, immerse, immerse. And then we would understand all these texts that are confusing. But immersion by far is the best best picture. The reason for this is we see that John was baptizing in the Jordan River... Because there was much water there, according to John 3.23. Now, if baptism was only by sprinkling or pouring, you could be baptized anywhere, right? I mean, all you'd need is, you know, a little bottle, a plastic bottle of purified water. And then you could put some in your hand and sprinkle people or pour some on their head, and that would be it. But he baptized people in the Jordan because there was much water there. When Jesus was being baptized, Matthew 3.16 describes him as coming up out of the water. Which clearly shows that John dunked him under. So we believe in baptism by immersion. Believer's baptism by immersion. You understand that Christ died for your sins on the cross? That he was buried and rose again on the third day. You understand that you are a sinner, that you need salvation, you repent, you believe, and are saved, and as an act of obedience, because you want to make a public profession of your commitment to Jesus Christ, you want to symbolize the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ through, the, through water baptism, you do that. And so that's what we're going to see right now. Let's pray, and we'll watch some baptisms. 
Father, we thank you for being able to just spend some time surveying your word. Father, we know that there are many people who have disagreed over the mode of baptism and the method of baptism and the means of baptism and the purpose. And Father, certain things are clear. It is commanded. It is something all believers must do. And Father, we just pray now as we listen to the testimonies of those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ that we would have great joy and thank you for what you have done in their lives as they make a public profession of their commitment to walk with you in newness of life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.